This week on the podcast, we're talking about how environmental effects can have a transformational impact on your encounters. Along with that, Ben learns an important lesson about gravity. Welcome to We Speak Common. Hello and welcome to another episode of We Speak Common, where we are lovingly supported by the Dice Dungeon. If you find yourselves in your D&D games walking through the frigid north of Icewind Dale and exploring the uh, the Frost Maiden's curse of uh, eternal winter, you might think that, you know, winter's approaching in the real world. But you might want to make it a little bit better, a little bit nicer, a little bit warmer with a lovely present for your DM. Some wonderful dice are available on the Dice Dungeon website and you can get 10% off with our code We Speak Common. We'll talk more about that later. And there's a link in the description to add it to your uh, your your basket right now while you browse their wonderful wares. But right now, before we get into all of that, Joe! Hello, mate. How you doing? Benjamin, I'm doing uh, very well, you know. Um... <laughs> yeah, are you? Okay, good. Good. Just ran a... A nice game of Dungeons and Dragons, for which neither were featured in said session, but um There was something kind of like a like a dragon. Kind of, yeah. It went down quite well all the same, I think. Uh and so I'm pretty chill now. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a bit of a brain bender, isn't it, when you DM, you know, you're on overdrive thinking a lot, talking a lot. Yes. Yeah. So uh I'm looking forward, Ben, to just Chilling, listening to the musings you have to say on the matter, Ben, and um, okay, chilling out. Yeah, it's we're gonna just be... gonna have a nice little, nice little impromptu chat about D and D and some some fun things. Absolutely, Benjamin. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. No, it was a. <clears throat> to be fair, it was it was a good session. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't play my game all too often, so it's nice to, to jump in every once in a while. I'm finding now that in the little bits of of D and D that I do DM, I. I used to find the, uh, I suppose the overall story was like my main drive, if you will. Yeah. But I just quite enjoy role playing different NPCs now. <laughs> you know, with just, with sort of distinct personalities. I'm, I'm enjoying just giving characterization to people in the world. Yeah, I get um, that. I get that. Especially because it's quite like a a foreign setting to, I would say super traditional D&D, if you will. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's nothing too crazy out there, but it's a little bit different sort of thematically and tone-wise. So it's nice that I can just sort of uh, go to town on that, you know, and uh, surprise people. But, yeah, no, so it's been a, it's been a, a pretty fun one. You fought a uh, Monsters of the Old World creature, mm. which was fun. Speaking of which, that. we have just done a giveaway for that. Uh, over on our twitter and if you are if you are listening to this podcast on day of release we are to we might have if you're listening later in the day uh if it's you know first thing if you're an early riser <laughs> hello you then um uh, we probably haven't announced the winners yet but they will be announced today so uh, keep an eye out for that if you entered nice nice i mean i was i was flicking through the old monster manual time of foes you know Vilo's guide all that but nothing was really jumping out at me, Ben. Mm. I wanted a bit of a, a bit of spice, and then I, uh, yeah, I came across the lindworm, which is a pretty pretty spicy creature. It's fairly standard big lizard type affair, but it's got a um, paralysis attack. And I thought because I, it's actually not really like an aquatic creature, but I mm. reflavored it to be uh, like a coastal type creature. It can operate on land and and sea, and does so. And it's got some young, some offspring. And then I thought. 
you know, in terms of encounter building, how can I um, introduce a an environmental element to this encounter? So, as you were fighting on the side of a cliff, I thought, well, let's give it a pushback <laughs> on its breath weapon. Yeah. And let's give it little kids pushbacks on their breath. Yeah. And the best part is, then, if you're paralysed, you automatically fail your deck save. So you're going yeeted straight off that cliff. I Funny spent enough, the whole of that combat pretty much stunned and being just pushed around by these these breath weapons and it was the worst joe it was the absolute worst well yeah that did happen ironically uh you were the only one who was paralyzed but you didn't get pushed off the edge just because of blind luck <laughs> your luck yeah <laughs> but the wizard that was fine did get yeeted off the edge uh that was a lot of fun see and i thought about this as well i was like okay well 250 foot drop with one save probably a bit harsh so i had the cliff sort of rounded on its edge so you mm. begin to tumble down and there's like, if you fail like two saves in a row, then you're going all the way off. But the first save just sends you sort of careening. Mm. And then it's the second one that's the, the sheer drop off. Luckily, you know, the wizard can miss his step and whatnot. So uh, she managed to save herself from that unfortunate event. Mm. But it's quite fun. I like environmental stuff like that, where the players could potentially, um, and I don't think he had it, but the uh, the warlock, if he'd had elderly, put the um, repelling blast could have knocked the creatures off the cliff with eldritch blast or you know thunder wave or, or whatever yeah absolutely you, know, you, you opted to not do any of that and just hit them and then turn into an ape and continue to hit them well look i mean i was in a position where uh, i mean i went down i got back up thanks to um a healing word was up with like 10 hit points and i thought i need to do something because I mean, i'm a, I'm a college of swords bard so i you know i'm pretty good in melee combat but there was no way I was going to survive more than a round. So I was like, what can I do here that's going to make me effective, but also heal me? Just a good old polymorph on yourself, turn into a giant ape, and uh, went to town. It's a nice little panic button, the old polymorph. Uh, and at the level you're at, it still works relatively well as a buff. Yes. Once you get into higher levels, it's not really worth turning into a, a beast anymore. But right now, it's like still kind of worth. Well, you're all level seven, I believe. So yeah, it's still in that that decent enough range. And uh, it worked out because you had nice climbing speed. So when the creature tried to escape down the mountain, you could just hop down there and uh, swing a you know swing across the rocks and 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 huck a rock of your own at it, mm-hmm. which was which a was... lot of fun. Yeah, no, that was nice. Uh, having absolutely. that having that um that ability that spell really made. Like it's because it's not not that it's not fun when you're like stunned for for three rounds of combat and die a couple of times, but you you kind of sit there thinking like okay I need to what can I do like there's there's not really anything you can do when you're stunned like that there's nothing that you can do for yourself you need to be helped by someone else so I'm sitting there thinking like okay well, once I'm not stunned what am I gonna do because I'm I'm in a real bad way and and having that that ability that that's so kind of unique because the only other people who really shift are druids and being able to do that when you're not a druid it just it it added a bit more fun into the end of the encounter which which was kind of me like problem solving and panicking the whole way through the beginning Mm. you know it's fun i mean i generally as a dm refrain as much as i can from using certain like stun and paralysis abilities just Mm. because obviously they do like knock a player out of the encounter well, see, in this, it was quite, like, synergistic with the rest of its abilities, so I was like, well, I, I sort of need to do it, and um, it's okay to do it every now and again, I find, as a, as a DM. For uh, sure. Because it's, it's, like, a unique problem that the players have to solve, and quite a major one, especially if you're paralyzed, that's, like, auto crits on you, it's uh, bad news, and so 
Yeah, it's like a it's a tool you don't overuse as a DM because then every encounter becomes kind of like a well, who's sitting this one out sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> definitely. I think if you've got players that can stun a lot more, like if you've got a stunning strike monk who's very good at getting those off, or if you've got a lot of hypnotic patterns going off and they're always hitting, then you know sometimes bringing it back in and giving your players a taste of their own medicine is nice because um, it makes them realise like oh we're not the only ones who can do this mm. uh, but then the other way around it of course is if that's your, your situation is not using creatures that are gonna su- succumb to that all the time that's it yeah and obviously i have got an illusion wizard in the party that <clears throat> does hypnotic pattern fairly frequently i mean you've it's, got uh, you've got two players with hypnotic pattern because i've got it as yeah well. yeah but she, she busts it out at every opportunity <laughs> yeah which and, and i can't blame her it's 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 the best option in many many scenarios for the for the most part but uh, yeah, so it's sometimes you have to you have to spin that on its head, and uh, you know scare the players, drive fear into them. Mm. Yeah, you definitely uh-huh. did that. I did think there was a moment. Phoebe, bless her, she's so she's not in this game. She uh, she said to me before I came up, she went, "Oh, text me if you need a cup of tea or anything halfway through." And um, we weren't halfway through the session with uh, when we got to this fight. We were probably maybe about a quarter through our whole session, and I texted her saying, "Can I have that cup of tea, please? I think I'm gonna die." <laughs> So I did at one point think I was going to go because if if I had been thrown off the cliff, like if I'm just unconscious, we've got a cleric, we've got a healer, like I'm probably not going to die unless something goes really, really badly wrong. But if I had gone down and been hit or thrown off the cliff, then it was it was a no go from that point on, really. Yeah, that would have been difficult. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, (laughs) It's an understatement. We would have took. If you'd gone right off the cliff, you would have took 20d6 damage. Mm-hmm. Which, which would have been more than my hit points, for sure. All right, kill me. Yeah, certainly. But certainly possible, anyway. Mm. So, yeah, no, that was a, a fun encounter. I'm, I'm pleased you uh, enjoyed it. It's nice when all the plot threads just come together. As mm. I've been doing this more sandbox-esque campaign, it's been a bit... It's it's tricky. It's it's a harder way to plan things than just having a more linear or more overt like main story. Mm. I didn't, and I think obviously with new players and whatnot, that's I find it's generally the way you want to go. But with you guys, I was like, okay, they're they're an experienced enough bunch now, <laughs> uh, where where I sort of just presented you with the problems, but did not give you direction on the solutions, and just it was just like figure it out because really, there's not one solution. I don't have. I've tried my best. I, I mean, I've, I've thought about how things might go, but mm-hmm. I have very little in the way of like how I think it's going to end and the what the quote-unquote desired outcomes are for me. I don't really have any of those. I'd like a few moments that I'd, I'd try, I will try and push to make happen. Yeah. But ultimately, there's no predetermined solution. Many different things could happen. And uh, I mean, many of the players want lots of different... Um, things anyway you know what i mean mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so yeah no it's uh it, it's interesting just to let let the dice roll and see what what solutions the players come up with because it really could go in many different ways i mean at the end of the campaign i think the whole landscape will look very different than how it started oh yeah for sure i like to try and do that too um you know i i know i know what the plot is i I know what the potential outcomes are i know what will happen if my villains succeed like what will happen in the world to affect the players if the villains are allowed to get their plans off but um apart from that it's kind of like okay here's what's happening off you go 
uh, what do you want to do? And I might have ideas of how you could go about it. Like there are certain solutions that I have thought of. Like whenever I try and plan something, I think, okay, how are they going to fix this? I'm all right. There's my there's my solution that I my most straightforward solution that they will probably go for. But then players in DM being players in D and D will often go the way you don't expect. So I kind of just leave it open for for you to interpret your own way, which I think is is a good recipe for fun. Is being open and allowing and being that whole yes and kind of improv rule. Um, I want to go back on something that you said though. You mentioned uh about the cliff and you like having environmental uh envi- environmental factors in your encounters. And I think we've spoken about it before. We've spoken about that avalanche that you did in this campaign a, a long time ago, and it is something that you do very very well. Um, what are your what are your main tips for putting an environmental factor into an encounter? Well, I think that for me, you need to balance the complexity. So, in like for instance, there are some monsters that you you don't require an environmental uh, factor to be in play, and it can enhance it, but it's it's really not necessary. So, like big bosses and stuff like that, creatures with plentiful and unique abilities uh, is it, it doesn't matter too much. But like for instance, in this encounter. The creature had a breath weapon and it had claws. That was kind of the gist, right? It could grapple, but that was sort of it, right? They were just sort of bruisers. So I add in the environmental bit to just add a bit more depth to the encounter. Similarly to when I did it with the avalanche and like the manticores. Manticores are a fairly standard enemy in that they have a ranged attack and they have like melee attacks, right? That's sort of it. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had a lot of like, spellcasters in an encounter enemy spellcasters that is they bring a lot of complexity just on their own they're almost like environmental effects on their own right they can push people around they can change the terrain they you you can do lots of different things depending on what sort of spells they're coming to the table with so sometimes i find it's not required but i think it can really spice up a sort of standard melee based encounters or just like martial based encounters Mm. uh, especially with beasts and stuff like that creatures that are not going to act too tactically they're just going to act a bit more innately and beasts can act tactically in the in the sense that if they have really good instinct right Mm. like uh the frog chemoth can i I play it that way it has a very specific way of of trying to kill things so and it it does it in an intelligent way but lots of creatures they generally just attack right or they flee that's sort of their two uh modes of of operating and so in those encounters i think you can add an environmental effect just to spice things up i think the key with environmental effects is they can they can't necessarily just be a detriment to a single acting party in the encounter i think what makes them fun is if anything that can be used to hinder the players uh, can also be used to help them Mm-hmm. based on the, the creativity of the player. So like I say, you could have just as easily pushed those creatures off the cliff as you could. Sometimes, like very rarely, I find it's interesting, especially if you are going into the favoured terrain of a certain creature or enemy, maybe then the environmental effects will only hurt you. For instance, if you're climbing up a really treacherous tower and there's a bunch of flying gargles that can like pick you up and drop you off, like... Yeah, okay, yeah, you can't push a gargoyle off the tower because it's got wings. Yeah. So in like in those few scenarios, right, if you're pushing but I would like to for I would foreshadow that a lot. So like, look guys, you're going into the belly of the beast here. This is their terrain. And then a tactful uh, sort of tactful players can then try to to draw the enemy out or do something 
else, right? Like, for instance, in, in your campaign, where we've got to fight the Xanathar, uh, I don't want to fight him in his lair because that seems like a terrible idea. So I'm we're trying to devise ways we can draw him out of that environment where he's uh, I just want to just want to correct you. You don't have to fight the Xanathar. <laughs> You've chosen to fight the Xanathar. Well, Ben, you gave my character some madness where he's... Well, you the, shouldn't have had head. your brain eaten, should you? I don't think I consented to that. Uh, <laughs> okay, that's that's <laughs> fair. I'll that give brain you that. eating, you know, it was more of a, it was it was thrust upon me, if you will. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Okay. That was not ideal. I mean, I don't know where I'm, I'm trying to get to this point in a bit of a circuitous manner, but th- basically, the gist of it is, I think you just need to use them in scenarios where they will benefit the count the encounter without cluttering it, mm-hmm. uh, because. If I've got loads of enemies, loads of different abilities and whatnot, me as a DM, I might not even want to be worrying about the terrain effects and things. But occasionally they can spice up an encounter enough. For instance, I, the one I did on the ship where we had a... You guys were on a ship that was... Yes, the big snake. It was, it was on a ship that was spiralling into a whirlpool. Yeah. So you had to worry about the controls of the ship to stop it getting deeper and deeper. The not deeper falling the off whirlpool. the ship. Or the more um, perpendicular the ship got to gravity, <laughs> the faster you were sliding off the edges. Yeah. Uh, and then on top of this, uh, the wizard was in a, a locked battle to the death with a bunch of flaming skulls, uh, and you were fighting some like ghostly spirits on the ship as well, which in their in- this was their environment, so they did not get affected by the gravity. They couldn't slide around. They're ghosts. Mm. They, they stand where they stand, right? So it was only a detriment to the party because they were in their environment. But you had the ability to limit how detrimental those effects were by taking control of the rudder and making sure the ship didn't get steered into the uh, the horrible abyss, if yeah, you will. Yeah. So that one was really complex, but I, the actual abilities of the creatures were pretty standard. The flaming skulls were like fireball, magic missile, shield, like fairly standard. And then the 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 spiritual the spiritual creatures were more just like your basic fighters. Yeah. So I think it worked out all right. Yeah. I think as well, an important takeaway is to remember that environmental factors are going to be as complex or as simple as you make them. So yeah, an environmental factor can be the fact that you're fighting something in a storm, which is what I did with uh, the old blue dragon that you fought as Galahad in Estroff. Um, And that's kind of as simple as, well, it aids the dragon because he can hide from the party. It aids the party because they can hide from the dragon. Um, it also had the added benefit for me of being quite, um, not only thematic with the dragon, but also uh, atmospheric. And it set up and helped set up how big this dragon was in the approach because you were coming across, you know, cow carcasses and things and it had taken livestock and eaten them and stuff like that. Um, so they can be they can be big and and amazing set pieces, or they can just be as simple as a storm, or like you know, effectively another one is like a chase sequence. If you're on a, a train, for example, or uh, two carriages that are moving down a road in a city, like that's kind of an environmental factor. If you're not in a chase in the way that the PCs are in control, if they're in control of the carriages, then it's more of a chase sequence. But there's lots of different things you can add in just to to give a little spice and i think my rule of it is if i'm looking at my encounter that i've built and i'm thinking uh okay this is a bit this is going to be a bit boring like they're just gonna fight the goblins like it's just uh, gonna be a one two one two back and forth then i might think okay here's where i could put in an environmental factor because i can spice it up 
if I'm thinking, oh, there's lots going on here, the wizard's going to get counterspelled by the Eulathid and uh, the Alhuni then. And the, uh, you know, the, the fighter's going to get his uh, mind wiped by the intellect devourer. I might think, mm, okay, maybe won't go with the environmental factor this time because they've already got a lot to deal with. And so have I as a DM. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And like I say, it's it's to be used uh, appropriately and with in conjunction with the pace of the session, the pace of the overall campaign. Mm. And what I mean by that is you need to vary up your encounters in a way that's always satisfying to the players. And I find that to go to either end of the expect of the spectrum of encounters and be on the extreme doesn't bode well in the long term. For instance, if you're constantly doing highly challenging, highly difficult encounters, or not necessarily challenging, but highly complex encounters, uh, then that will become quite tiring quite quickly. It's thrilling to fight something and be on the edge of your seat and get dropped down to a bunch of low hit points and and, and sort of scrape your way through or, or do something very ingenious and, and save the day. But then if you do that two times a session for three sessions, like... It's like, oh, when are we going to, when is he going to let up? When is he going to get a break? Yeah. And then that's when you want to pull in the encounters where you just fight a bunch of goblins or you come across a, perhaps an, uh, an encounter that can be achieved with combat or uh, negotiation. Or I like the ideas of when you have a really powerful party, I'm talking like tier three, level 15, 16 or whatever, and having them come across a bunch of uh, bugbears or a bunch of orcs or something. Mm. And they can wipe the floor of them if they want. And that can sometimes be just a nice palate cleanser where you haven't got to think too much. You can just let off some of your big spells and abilities and, and feel pretty good about it. And it's also a nice juxtaposition. I find a good tool is to bring almost identical a counter to a party uh, that's leveled up, say, five or six times. So they fight the bunch of orcs and it's a tough encounter and whatnot, level five, but then maybe they come across a very similar encounter at level 10. And now they can feel the development of their power and their growth and their tactics because they just wipe the floor with these people now on their massive spells and whatnot. Mm. And you can think, damn, we've, we've come a long way. Uh, so that's another way you can do it. Yeah. But it's all about just varying it up. Obviously the, the sort of the good part about D and D is it, it really does allow you to have that sort of, spice of life and you can try all sorts of different things in it you don't have to run along the same track and and sometimes i find as a dm you get into something that works or it feels like it works a couple of times and then you continue to pursue that sort of aggressively and then all of a sudden you kind of burn it out and it's no longer uh working anymore i mean i find that when i have a dm or sorry a dma an npc that the players really connect with Oftentimes it's a it's a character that I've not spent too much time on it, but it just happens that the players connect with them. Um, it's almost always that way as opposed to the characters I spend a lot of time on and I really care about. The players are not normally as infused to, to <laughs> yeah. engage with that said character, which is... That's is the way. Is. That is the way. But, but then I find, oh, they've latched onto this character and there's that urge inside every DM to just use them all the time now mm-hmm. because the players are but that you gotta fight that you gotta be like whoa restraint hold back you know let's uh let's calm down a little bit let's not ruin this this good thing we have going here yeah so that's uh another thing to do i find with um like for instance you you so the players seem to enjoy this little shopkeeper that I'd made uh, in the last session. Not this one we did today, but the one before. Yeah. And that was quite enjoyable. Um, and then without me really bringing it up, you sort of 
the players pursued to end up interacting with that kid, that same character again today. You know what I mean? But me as a DM now, even though both encounters went really well, I'm like, whoa, let's yep. calm down need on the to, shopkeeper, okay? Need to not bring her back again. Let's reel her back a little bit. You know, let's, we don't want to overdo it. This is a fun little zany character. Let's uh, let's calm it down, Joe. You know, you've got better ideas out there somewhere. <laughs> you just gotta come find them. <laughs> they exist. Just look for them. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah, I totally get that. I mean, I've got a few like that. I worry in in Dragon Heist as well. Like there are a lot of um, big player NPCs because it's kind of like a breeding pot for that in Waterdeep. And uh, and oh God, what are we going to talk about when I finish playing Waterdeep? When I finish running that, you know, all our content, all my content comes from that. <laughs> But there are there are a few characters, you know, like the Open Lord or um, Dernan or the Blackstaff. They always they they keep coming up again and again and again, and the players have latched onto them. But they're kind of like the Gandalfs of the of the Fellowship. They're kind of there to to give the quests and let you go off and do things. So it's a little bit easier with them in in their reappearing and in not feeling forced or laboured. And the way around it is to over time make sure the players see different aspects of their personalities so you know sometimes kiro goes to see the black staff and she's in a good mood and she's happy to talk to him about stuff and sometimes he goes and she's just had a bollock in from the black star uh, from the open lord and she has to you know she's in a grumpy mood and she's drinking coffee and she doesn't want to deal with this shit today so there's um there's ben- benefits to big npcs coming back but there are a couple like the the old Zoblob shop, which appears in chapter one of Dragon Heist. There's a uh, a zany shopkeeper there. You guys have been back to that shop like five times, I think, and it's been very um, spread out. It doesn't happen often, and it's never because I've brought it up. You always go, "Oh, that shop's here. We're in this this. We're in the dock ward. Let's go to it." And I'm like, "Oh, <laughs> okay." And you you go back in, and it actually has kind of worked out for you because there is an item there that's been there since the very beginning that you've now found a use for and you you're thinking oh i can we can we can take that let's go back and get it and it did come in handy when he was connected to the guild and you were getting into the xanathers but yeah it's it's tricky to to do that and to and to not think oh okay you've seen him a lot of times now um do i just do i just make the shop close the next few times you come by or or do I you know do I buy you from being able to go and see him when you bring him up or do I just let it happen it's it's a bit of give and take I think to to get the balance right mm. yeah no for sure and it's uh it's tricky because you've got a trust in your work your preparation and your world building that just because you've found an element that works very well that your other elements that have not been discovered yet could work just as well, if not better. You just you, you need to trust that your your work is consistent enough across the board that you will that that will be the case. So you don't feel the need to to latch onto one specific thing too hard and and, and really milk it. I mm-hmm. guess yeah is the key there, uh, and it can be tricky. I mean, sometimes it's good to to have a a reoccurring element. It can act as like a a touchstone throughout a campaign like for instance you've had this well for like pretty much almost the first session like session two or three you've had this uh magic eye item that has that is sentient and has its own opinions and things it's been it's actually invaded the the mind of two different characters within the party so far and it's something that 
it's been there. It's like a touchstone. It's like a, it's almost like a member of the party at this point because it's, it's, it's had so much interaction, but I still try to refrain from using it too much uh, because every time I do use it, it generally for the most part gets like a, a, a positive um, reaction from the party. They seem to enjoy its, its, uh, its implementation. And it is probably one of the elements that's come back the most throughout the campaign. But again, like you got to remember, it's not, uh, a party member you don't want to fall into that trap as a dm as almost yeah. acting as a, a as a player character uh, because it just never really works for no, some reason no, i mean doesn't. i guess there are some i mean you know if you're out there and you've had a dmpc since day one and it's like been wonderful then let me know about it I, i'm interested to see how you've done that but oftentimes it can feel like either you're overshadowing the party yeah. or you're just there as like a safety net to solve puzzles, give them clues, give them plot hooks, bail them out of TPKs and things like that. And it, it feels like an unnecessary sort of tutorial mode for the game, if you will. For sure. I think the only way that I have ever done it is with Orlo. And that's sim- simply because we were play. Oh, you know, I was a player, James was DMing. We, we switched seats and I wanted, I didn't want to just get rid of Orlo. I wanted to have him as my player character for when James's game kicks back off. And it and it will continue in the same universe because we've got that shared world setting, which if you um, haven't heard us talk about, we had James on, we talked about it in the previous episode. So scroll back, have a listen. Um, but with him, I was very much like, like I can never win really. Either you use him or you forget about him. And I never want to... Um, I never want to make you have to use him. I always want him there as an option. Um, and equally, I want him to be there because for me as a as someone who knows that eventually these characters will go off on an adventure and he will be my player character, I want him to have the established relationship with all of the rest of the party. So it's like, well, how do you get that balance right? How do you have someone there but not have them overshadow or not um, take over in any way? In any way? Or get overused by the players. And it really is just, I think, a lesson in restraint. Like, I would love for Orlo to go on all of your adventures with you. Because then he's got this history with you all. But at the same time, I don't want that. Because I I don't want to be a player. I'm the DM. I'm not, you know, I'm controlling NPCs, yes. And in a way, that's what... And I think this is where people trip. In a way, the PC character has become an NPC. But they're not. They're not NPCs. They are intrinsically mechanically better than npcs they are stronger and there's something that happens with the balance and the storytelling when you when you bring them across so whenever cowrie for instance says you know i would like to go to orlo and ask him to come with me and cast an invisibility spell on me i'll say okay that's fine and then i'll make sure that orlo doesn't come up with any ideas or any um you know doesn't doesn't see something that the party doesn't see all of the stuff that you would discover as players through perception checks um all of the problem solving that you would do as players he doesn't do even though if i was playing him as a player he would do that stuff and it's just about knowing the difference between being in the the driving seat as a dm or the passenger seat as a player Mm. it is hard though i think no, it, it is. I mean, I think you got the benefit there that that character started out as an actual player character. And it feels to me as a player, you have the checks and balances of because James is also involved in the world as a DM, right? And generally, 
gives sort of an, an, an editorial final say on a lot of decision making that comes with Orlo as like a player character, for instance. Yeah. Um, because he DMs a lot of the stuff revolving around Orlo. It's, it's like you don't have complete control of that character, just like how player characters don't have com- complete control. Like you feel like you're in the same boat. So it feels like a, a very fair interpretation of an, an NPC slash player character, if you will, because you have that checks and balances of James coming in there and also DMing partially, right? So it's yeah. not like you can have these overwhelmingly executive decisions that... Uh, change the world. Yeah, change the world or forego anything else that the players might want to, to do or, or explore, etc. So in a way, it works well. I mean, I had... I suppose Sigrid was sort of a DM PC for a while. And I, I would do the similar thing where I would try my best to have him be a certainly useful. You don't want them to be completely useless, right? And because you're when you're saying, oh, he doesn't do perception checks, he doesn't help with this and that. It's like, well, why is he here? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, he does, but not in the sense that he's not going to, you know, if you fail a perception check, he's not just going to succeed it for you. No, exactly. That's the that's the key there. He he provides assistance and he has an opinion on things, right? Mm-hmm. But I make sure his help is restricted massively by his by his his worldview, right? His 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 yeah. life, his backstory, everything. I tr- I try very hard to ensure I'm not metagaming with him and injecting my own DM knowledge into that character. Mm-hmm. And I'm try my very best to ensure that Whatever he does strives towards his own goals and not my goals as a DM, which is often like, better make sure the players see my good content. You know what I mean? Put <laughs> them in the right direction. I'm like, no, I've got to, I've got to uh, let them forge their own way. Yeah, the, he's he's always acting under sort of the the aegis of the party, right? He's he's secondary to their direction, and even though he was sort of their superior for a while. He deferred to them because they were often the experts in a lot of the issues we were coming up against. And whilst he is sort of the quote unquote quest giver in a way, he like gave the overall broad direction, but he's not narrowing it down at all because I tried to make sure the nature of the quest he was going on had a simple objective, but many, many ways to achieve it. Right. Mm -hmm. And he was not biased into how any of those ways would be implemented. So it was very much, uh, up to the the players to to come up with that he's you know he's sort of replete with useful things he can do for the party but oftentimes one of those things is not telling them exactly what to do yeah it's it's all about not having them become a mary sue you don't want them to just be able to succeed at everything and know everything and be able to do everything because then then they're just unlikable in a way really um and that's that's the the risk that you run with it if you don't do it properly um joe it is coming up to the 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 season of giving regardless of whether you celebrate christmas or some other festive holiday uh, at this time of the year um there's a lot of gift giving going around and i thought since we are dms and players the best gifts we can give are a lovely set of shiny new dice how does that sound well ben you know the the beleaguered situation we're in at the moment, Ben, locked in our homes, unable to uh, escape into the wider world, Ben. Mm. Perhaps it is worth 
uh, you know, giving back to your forever DM, the one who does not get to play the game, the one who's probably made more character sheets, more builds, yeah, more class concepts than you can ever come up with. But he's played none of them. No, not not a single one. The only time he has played them is when he is hunched over his table alone, lit by a single lamp, rolling encounters from both sides. Uh, You can add to his dice collection with 10% off, Joe. 10% off your entire order. Then how would one possibly do something so generous? Well, if you're listening to this podcast right now, you can head to the description of this episode where there is a link to the Dice Dungeon website. Browse away, pick some dice out, some for you, some for your forever DM, and 10% will automatically put onto the basket when you check out. If you go to the dicedungeon.co.uk when you are, you know, just on the internet in general later, then uh, you can add the code we speak common to your checkout and it'll add the discount as well. Plus, you'll help out, out uh, us here as well, which is always nice. Well, that's the thing. And, you know, is it a sort of superfluous gift to give a DM dice that probably has hundreds upon hundreds of sets at the moment? No, because they can never have enough. No, exactly. Mm. Never. That is mm. true. Very, very true. Uh, go and do it. Go and get some dice. We speak common at the Dice Dungeon for the discount. We, uh, Joe, we played... Uh, my game we played dragon heist last weekend and it was a pretty big session in the fact that a lot happened but also for me a big session because i learned something for the first time joe i learned something wow i know wow. I've, I've improved um so i Growth. thought i thought we could talk a little bit about the session and then i could tell you what i've learned so would you like me to give a little recap or do you want to do you want to get into it ben, let's get it from the horse's mouth here okay ben. okay Okay, so the players uh, still in Skullport decided that now was the time to deal with the Mind Flare problem in the Xanathar's Guild. You've decided that, yes, you want to kill the Xanathar, but you want to finish off the main storyline, go and get the dragons out of the vault, do all of that, potentially get that level in, because you kind of know it's coming, and um, and then go back in with all of your buddies, using your, your portion of the gold to, to up your your weapons and things and, and go and stab him in, in the many eyes. So you had a chat with uh, with a NPC in the guild who's turned out to be a spy. You've, you've learned some useful information and you were struggling to get back up top to the surface where you were then going to lure out Nilhalor and murder him brutally. Now, um, fun little side bit, you, uh, you met Halister in Skullport. Um, and learnt about Manchun through him. Turns out uh, uh, Manchun, the fourth player in the game, it's taking you this long to work out who the fourth player in the grand game is, had uh, gone down into Undermountain, challenged Halister to a duel, and lost, and Halister took his arm, and now Halister wants the rest of him. And uh, and you agreed to do that for the, in returning Mind Blank spell on your wizard to hide him from the Mind Flayer, and off you went, teleported up to Waterdeep, called out Nilhalor. Now, I thought... Right. I, I, I There was an item that Nilhalor had that I thought it would be cool for you to achieve. So I thought, well, if you kill him, it'd be good if he had that on him. So when you contacted the Mind Flayer, he said, meet me in the base that I can teleport to. Because for ease for him, he would. But also that means you could get the key if you did manage to kill him. And that base has a very nice little arena, basically. Um, it's got a big long throne room with a throne. It's nice open space. Uh, you can do a lot of damage, a lot of combat encounters in there. It's a lot of, yeah, basically it's an arena. But no, Joe, you hatched a plan 
the five of you to polymorph the beholder one of the big bads of the game the mind flayer the mind flayer sorry yeah thank you into a worm take him out to undercliff use the wizard's familiar to fly him up 200 feet into the sky and drop him so that he would reach terminal velocity smash into the ground and then you just wail on him until he died uh, yeah, I, I mean, I love the terminal velocity manoeuvre. It's one I've been wanting to implement for some time. I can't even take credit for it. Pretty sure I read it on, on Reddit somewhere mm-hmm. about uh, a uh, a fun little an- plan. And if you're doing this at home, all right, you, your DM may try and fuck you. So if that's the case, <laughs> you want to ter- you want to turn it into a, like a turtle, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, technically, everything falls at the same rate in D&D. That's how it works, how the rules work. But yes. DM's like, well, well, a worm doesn't fall very far, so you can be like, fuck you, DM turtle then. That's yeah. like that. Turtle That's all them apples. Luckily, Ben's not anal like that, so we uh, we, we went with the worm concept for this this endeavour. And uh, yeah, it's quite simple. You, 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 you polymorph into a small little creature, you pop them in a little bag. They got one, nice, yeah. one hit point. The key is to make sure that he can't really hurt himself. Not that a creature that's really dumb would necessarily try and do that, but some maybe by accident, you know, uh, if you turn him into, say, like a a little ferret or something, he might nibble on himself, accidentally cut himself, boom, now he's a, a, a mind player again. Nightmare. In your pocket Probably, as well, which is not going to happen. in a little bag, and then you take your familiar, because you're a wizard at this point, right? You take your little familiar, and they just fly up 200 feet. You don't need to go crazy. You don't need to go higher than that. Full damage maxes out at 200 feet. Not a problem. And then you drop them. Twenty d six damage later, you're laughing. Yeah, Not exactly. Now this this is a this got me because I mean it was you would you would you were planning it as you do. You were going through the plan in in the session, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, the odds of you getting getting this polymorph off on the mind flayer are pretty slim because he's got good save. He wasn't a normal mind flayer. He was a I think he was a Eulithid. I'll have to check which stat block I used. But he, so he's a bit, bit more beefy than a standard mind flayer, and he had advantage on saving throws against magic. Somehow, he still managed to roll a four. So well, you know, there was preparation that went into this. All right, there because was. It's uh, probably the main concern was that he was going to counter spell any uh, polymorph effect. Right, mm. nightmare had been a problem for us, but. Mind flayers rely generally more on their 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 mindy blind sensey than they do their their eyeballs, right? So yes. quite simply, you take my good wizard friend here. We get a we get a uh, a mind blank from the the mad mage himself. More on that later. <laughs> uh, he luckily yeah, we, we have Alistair. we have brushed over that. <laughs> we bumped into Alistair, and after a bit of back and forth, selling our souls to and all that, he decided to mind blank our. Uh, our friend, and he and he wished our nice little quotes book to be even better than it was as well. Yeah, we'll get we'll get back into it. Crazy stuff. So, and then the wizard goes invisible. He's basically undetectable to the mind flayer now. He's not going to polymorph, or he's not going to counter spell. He's not going to get off anything first, like a plane shift. That would be bad. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, then the polymorph went off. Lovely. He, we gave him disadvantage on the throw, so that was just normal. You rolled low, mm-hmm. fish, bash, bosh, you got yourself a worm. Now, Nilhalo is a is a big name in Dragon Heist, and so he had a lot of hit points. Um, he survived the fall, but then obviously you guys had all readied your actions so that when he shifted back into a Mind Flayer out of being a worm, because the damage would roll over, you just start wailing on him. So you did. Got a whole, 
whole lot of ready actions off. Then he had, I think he had about 12 hit points left by the time that we were into normal combat and he could actually act. So you did, you did really well. He had a lot of hit points. I can't remember the exact number, but it was over 200. And uh, he got up slowly and tried to use, obviously he knows you, Joe. He knows who Carrie is. He's spoken to you before. He tried to use his once a day plane shift to get away. Like he's just, he was like, well, fuck this, I'm out. Like I've got to go. Yep. Um, got me done. And that's you know he just he just fallen out of the sky, been beaten up to near death. Like it was the he was like, what do I do? What do I do? How do I get out of this? Quick thinking. Oh, plane shift. Started to plane shift. What did the wizard do? Counter spell. He he counter spell. And uh, luckily the wizard rolled the required. Rolled uh, very number. high. Yeah, very. I don't high. know. I don't know what a plane shift is. Was that level eight? I think. Uh, yeah, I believe so. But he got over a twenty. He did very well. Um, yeah. It might be a seven, you know. But either way, uh, that then went into the, you know, that's his actions gone, going to the rest of the round of combat. That mind flayer was not going to survive. And we shanked him to death after you did. that, um, which you is wonderful. Quite literally shanked him to death. So here's the lesson I learned, though, Joe, because, mm-hmm. and I and I, I think most people will think this too. There's, as a DM, you, you, you get in your mind this idea that, okay, they're going to take on this big named npc this person who's been dealing with them the whole session they've they've been planning it for a long time it's a it's a specific quest for a player who wants a very specific reward like this has been building up to it it's gonna be a fun epic encounter like it's you know we might we might be near death might be a near tpk no no no. they just polymorph him into a worm and drop him so my gut reaction to that is oh how disappointing how annoying that must not be fun because there was no epic highs and lows there was no big boss encounter and i did i did you know during the session i'm laughing away i'm enjoying it i'm like i can't believe they're actually going to do this to me and then it starts happening i'm like okay well can't stop it now it's happening and you just roll with it and afterwards i was thinking i'm a little bit disappointed we didn't get a cool boss fight encounter with the mind flare and i asked phoebe and i said how do you feel about all that like did you enjoy it did you have fun and she was like what do you mean i said well was it you know was it did you prefer it as much as you would have like a, an epic boss fight with boss music and stuff and sort of explained what I was thinking? And she said, do you know, what? I think I liked it more. And I realized that just because and it, and it, and it took losing a mind flare this way, took losing a, an important NPC this way to realize that just because in my mind, the fun comes from the storytelling, the epic highs and lows of that boss fight for the players it's just as fun and if not more fun to sit there come up with a crazy plan and see it executed flawlessly because mm. for me i'm like oh but if you'd have had a boss battle it would have been like you know an hour in game of back and forth and 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 talking and countering spells and slinging spells and slashing like it would have been really epic and and in game with what you did it was like over in half an hour at most but that doesn't mean it's not fun and exciting and there's a there's a lot of a lot of fulfillment in letting your players come up with that ridiculous plan and having it work flawlessly too if the dice allow it well i think there's a lot of factors at play here and i would say specifically that the boss battle didn't start when we polymorphed the the mind flare the, the, for us the boss battle started eight sessions ago when we decided <laughs> we were going to kill the mind flare yeah that's when that's when the battle began because 
the boss battle, you know, we had highs and lows throughout of, okay, I need to get entrenched in the Xanathar Guild. The party helped me do that. I need to get to know the Mind Flayer. We need a reason to draw him out. We had to fight a bunch of other Mind Flayers to get an item that the Mind Flayer, this Mind Flayer would be interested in enough to draw him away to then talk to him. I had to build a relationship with him, mm. you know, kind of do things for him. Uh, I had to build trust, um, all that, all through different roles and whatnot. And then beyond that, even though there were limited roles, they were all very high stakes. The, the fact that we managed to get the mind blank was a huge boon. That involved basically a massively treacherous deal with like the most powerful man in Waterdeep. And the, the maddest man. The maddest man, exactly. Like our, our lives are ruined now, no doubt about it. I'm, I'm sure that <laughs> this will come to a horrible conclusion later down the line. We had to do that. And then the highest stakes of the whole thing was the polymorph. If we didn't get it off, we're fucked. It, mm. it, it, would, not, it would have been very bad for us, right? Probably because we were in a Xanathar guild as well. Like I would have had to try and convince the people that I was more important than he was, mm-hmm. like to side with me like that. That would have been a tough sell. And so that was important. And then when he landed, all well, that was important. And then it's not like he just petered out because the very last throw of the dice was the plane shift counter spell. Yeah. If he'd rolled low enough, he would have been gone. I would have been fucked. He, I would have had to go into hiding witness protection. No, well, I'm thinking about it. If he plane shift, he'd do it once a day. So he'd be stuck on a different plane for 24 hours. Mm-hmm. I would have had to run back to the Xanathar Guild. I would have had to been somehow with the Xanathar, right? Mm-hmm. I would have had to figure out a way where I can slay Nilhalor before he can tell the Xanathar what's happened. Yeah. Like, it, it would have been it would have been bad. Like, I would have had 24 hours to come up with a plan. <laughs> if um, that plane shift had gone off the session would have ended with him just vanishing. That is where we would have, that cliffhanger would have been so, oh, amazing. And that's it. So there were a lot of highs and lows in it. And beyond that, I think thematically, like if we were in a different campaign, yeah, it might not, we wouldn't have been underwhelming for the reasons I just stated, but it wouldn't have been as grand as it was because I find in this campaign, in a city crawl, where us as players are dealing with elements far beyond our capabilities in levels like a lot of these elements we're dealing with we should be like level 15 to face you know what i mean we're Mm. really punching above our weight uh here so we to win we have to eke out every single one of these advantages and that's what's part of the fun of running dragon heist in this way is that it wouldn't be as fun if we were all level 15. It would be more of a fair fight, right? And mechanically, maybe D&D would be slightly more balanced that way in the traditional sense. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we have to find all these advantages, like I used a poison that did like 30 damage, right? Yeah. And I, I, I'd been holding on to it for like 10 sessions because I knew I was going to either use it for this or the Xanathar. I, I, I'd planned all these items. I know um, one of the other characters poisoned their weapon. Like we'd, we'd done everything we could to eke out every advantage and it still wasn't a guarantee. Yeah. And even if it was a guarantee, it still would have been really fun because we'd we'd put the work in to do it. Like like now, like before I go and fight the Xanathar, I know the Xanathar is over leveled for me as a mm. character. <laughs> a party of level level seven or level eight characters is going to struggle against him. So I know I'm going to have to go get some poisons. I'm going to have to eke out advantages. I'm going to have to weaken him. I mean, our plan right now is to get him to dream up another beholder, have them both fight each other till they're low on HP, and then we just come in and finish him off. You're gonna like, thir- you're gonna third party him. <laughs> Yeah, and even if even if we kill him in one hit at that point, 
it would still be very very satisfying i think that would be a lot of satisfying too because you can be like hiding in the doorway watching two beholders duke it out which would be a lot lot of fun too and it's not like and the planning that goes into that is we've had to do this whole other side quest we had to talk to this rag mage fellow a lovely bloke let me tell you mm. uh who told us about this machine that stops the xanifer from dreaming and whatnot like there's a whole it's a whole chain involved I had to I had to become like a mafioso last session <laughs> and, and, uh, and blackmail and threaten another guy to help me out in this quest. Yeah. So it was uh it's involved. So I would I would agree. It's all as a DM you because your tools as a DM are well I've got the hit points and the damages and whatnot and those are my tools to make the encounter fun. Mm. But, and it's like when you don't use any of those, you're like okay was that good you've got to remember all of the work that's gone into leading up to that point exactly exactly so now we feel the same in my campaign i guarantee like i have this one big boss in my campaign right handon yeah if you guys kill him in like one hit or do some really memey cheesy shit i guarantee (laughs) i'm gonna be like well this sucks (laughs) but if it's done in a clever way, I know eventually I'll be like, all right, yeah, no, that was actually pretty cool. Yeah, fine. It's quite clever. Fine. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You, yes, you teleported him to the plane of fire. Fine. Okay. <laughs> wow. We're so clever. You know what I mean? But, yeah. uh, but eventually I'll be like, actually, no, yeah, no, that was pretty cool. That was a cool way to go. Because at the end of the day, throughout your D&D career, you fight many, many bosses all the time. How often do you drop one from the sky? As a worm, it? yeah. As a worm. You know, I mean, that doesn't come up that often. No, and you'll remember that forever now as well. Mm-hmm. I know Ben will be having like featherfall and wings prepared on every single one of his creatures going oh, forward mate. now for the next 20 sessions. Don't even. Every time but... you polymorph someone into a worm, they've got a little metal band around their heads. It's actually a feather falling ring. Yeah, automatic. <laughs> it's a contingency. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's got contingency featherfall on. I like as well, side note, Phoebe said to me at the end of that session, she said, God, we've got so much going on. Like we've got so many, so much stuff, like how everyone knows us. And I was like, yeah, I was like, you're, you're big fish now. You've made a name for yourselves. You've <laughs> got to deal with this stuff, um, which is nice that that feeling's come across too. I like that. And it's, it's something I'm trying to implement in my campaign as well. It's mm. more early doors because you've it's just, it's just spent less time in it. Yeah. But, uh, Building that sense of reputation and cause and effect consequence for all the players' actions, both good and bad, and the way people feel about them. Two of the characters, just innately by their background, are fairly relatively well known anyway, mm. and that causes their problems. But uh, like, for instance, Ayara, who desperately wants to leave this place, uh, is purposefully being blocked by the big bad from doing so because she counterspelled him and it pissed him off so much. <laughs> if she hadn't have done that. Ben, she could leave oh yeah for sure yeah. she'd have been gone yeah, by I mean, but specifically uh the the big bad was like i can't believe you've done that no <laughs> i'm gonna be vindictive i can't believe you do this yeah. yeah so this that was a uh you know a cause and effect but it's interesting because now like this wizard from from nowhere that's not even related to any of the main quest is now very well known mm. to the big bad and he's uh you know staying rent free in his head <laughs> uh, um so. joe do you want to really quickly talk about Hallister. do you want to talk about that we can talk about that he was a, i mean i i mean i like to point out that i i worked out who he was long before okay the rest of the players did so in skullport there's a place called the poison quill which is a uh kind of like a 
it's not a bookshop but it kind of gives that idea every time you go in it smells like parchment and ink and chai tea and it's owned by a woman called tassara or tassiara i can't remember tass for short she um she basically went down into Undermountain years ago with an adventuring party. And when she got to Dwemacor, which is uh, a notable location in Undermountain, she, um, her party was murdered brutally. And she ended up through uh, hijinks being teleported into Hallister's private demiplane. And when she arrived, by pure luck, he was in a good mood and he offered her a cup of tea. And they sat and they chatted and they drank and they found out that they got on quite well obviously the whole time she's like profusely like sweating like trying to say the right things like she's stressed out but he lets her go and she goes to skullport she makes a shop and basically she offers his offers her services she copies spells and scrolls and things but she you can pay her to teleport you which is how you got out of skullport quickly you can pay her to um locate objects or to identify things like do all these kind of wizardy shit stuff and it just so happens that every now and then Hallister teleports in and has chai tea with her. And she gets very nervous every time it happens. But he, because he remembers her coming to her demiplane, being there kind of puts him in a good mood. So he's always in a good mood when he's there. Um, and I'd had this idea that if you went in, you'd you'd walk in on, on this encounter for a long time. Because there's little bits of Undermountain that you will explore. I've put the vault on the third level of Undermountain. Um but you you won't i don't think do that do the undermountain kind of quest line the storyline that i've built so i was like well i kind of want to use him while you're in water deep a little bit give you a little bit of taste of what's going on there and give you a hook if you ever wanted to come back and do it so when you were looking for a way out um i used a a dm technique to just make it obvious that there was something going on over there so that you could go and find out about the teleportation that she offers to get you home and there he was and I, going in, I roleplayed him as happy because he's in a good mood, um, erratic, um, what's the word, uh, very spontaneous and very f- uh, free and just n- not worrying about consequences, just doing whatever he wanted to in the moment. If he thought, I'm going to do this, he'd do it. How did you find him? How did you feel about the encounter? Yeah, no, I I enjoyed it. I I worked out straight away being a superior player mm. to my my mm-hmm. counterparts. The he was Hallister. Well, you did you did joke. You were like, oh, it's Hallister. I kind of knew that in the back of my head. I was like, because I was running through. I was like, who else could it be? Mm. And I was like, well, I'm not that up to date on Forgotten Realms lore. Maybe it's someone else. Because I was like, mm. no. And then when he said he came from below, I was like, come on, guys. Yeah. Put it together. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, it was nice. He uh, rudely, though, uh, tore up a piece of paper from Brom's uh, book, which I thought was a bit out of order. Yeah, so uh, Brom offered him his quote book, his book of quotes from notable people in the Forgotten Realms. and To have a look. To have a look. And Hallister found a quote that he liked. Who knows what that quote was, Joe? Who knows, you know? I mean, I know. And uh, he uh, he tore the page out to, to Brom's dismay. And Brom is a, a, a lovable idiot. Um, he went best too pleased. No, he was not best too pleased. And to be honest, uh, it upset me as well, Ben, as a uh, <laughs> as a player in the party. But luckily, Alistair, you know, good bloke that he is, just wished it better. Mm. And uh, now it's got even more quotes in it because he used a ninth level spell to do so. Which I I hope, in your eyes, cemented his madness enough for you. 
the fact that he he would just be like okay well i'll wish it better then and it and it grew two sizes big it certainly did well it showed for me he has no respect for magic whatsoever you know what i mean he's he's so far beyond uh the like in a, a a supreme example of a mage mm. that to him like nothing is sacred to him anymore you no, know no 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 not uh, at all. there is there is nothing uh and but I like in a way i quite liked him i think i feel like him and carrie would actually get on well for as mental as he is because <laughs> at the end of the day like he's just he's just straight up you know what i mean yeah there's uh there's not a lot of pretense with him there's a lot of stuff in his uh, quote-unquote backstory like th- in the story that i've written for under mountain for that adventure um the connections to manshoon what's going on in under mountain and why halister and and the dungeon itself are the way they are there's a lot of that that plays into why he is so just blase about magic and why he just does you know he is so spontaneous and erratic and why he is mad as well um but yeah i mean you could get on with him very easily but it just depends in what mood you find him because he has kind of got that split personality where he can just switch and change very quickly you just haven't experienced that yet you know Mm. yeah Ah, uh, for sure, yeah. And it, it's, it, I don't know if he'll come up again in the campaign. I, I suspect maybe not uh, the way things are going. But he's, uh, it was, it was fun to come across him. It's always fun when you come across um, sort of grotesquely powerful individuals. <laughs> yes, he uh, is definitely that. Out of nowhere, though, just sometimes obviously it's very it's very good to build them up and if you've got a big plan and you want to create a certain atmosphere but the the element of surprise cannot be uh understated as mm. a dm and, and and its usefulness as a, a tool in your toolbox and when you can put it in like that it, it the, the shock and awe it creates i think is uh it's quite important especially if you've you've given info about this character before and and in a way like the players didn't know much about him but well, the player characters, but the players did. So, in a meta sense, it was like shock oh, and awe. Yeah, you know like, what I mean? oh shit, From... yeah. So that's that's quite a fun thing to do, anyway. I, I like that sort of fourth wall breaking. Yeah, moment like, well, oh. that's the thing as well because I kind of like. I he was the perfect character for that because with playing in in an established universe and playing with people like james and when james runs a game and he plays it for me like i know a lot of lore james knows a lot of lore we enjoy researching and finding that stuff and putting it in our game so there are npcs and characters that you guys have come across and you have no idea who they are but james is like oh yes and he's like smiling and nodding and, and afterwards he'll message me like oh my god i can't believe we met so and so because i know that he'll appreciate stuff like that for example um Elminster, the Sage of Shadowdale, is the Ward of Waterdeep, and I would love to have him turn up some point because that would be like a big important moment for for James. But for me, Hallister was the perfect character for that kind of moment because you all kind of know who he is. You've all been hearing about him since the very beginning of the campaign in little ways and in senses that like the the opening of the of the campaign there was in in the in the opening kind of credit spiel that i did to that piece of music for you all there's a mention of a mate a, ma- a mage that went mad you know and there's you sometimes you hear the cackling laughter but that's a story for another time so from the very beginning there's been little hints about this guy and the history is all over the place and and you have characters in your party that that have history as their main cornerstones who will who will bring up stuff like that so to have him appear very spontaneously and surprisingly and just wish a book better and drop a mind blank for you is 
the the best way to to shock i think more so than a than you know oh we've been shocked by fighting a big evil monster famous monster no no no. this is a better way i think because it's fun as well mm. yeah no for sure see it's it's one of the downsides i suppose of doing uh sort of like a completely your own or like unique campaign like a like a homebrew thing for instance right mm-hmm. so i can so I can be like, guys, look at that character over there. He's important, isn't he? You know who he is? Of course you don't, because I made him up. <laughs> and he has no relevance to you whatsoever. You yep. know what I mean? It's like, well, yeah, I can't. It, that's that's one tool you can't use if everything you make is sort of homebrew in a sense. It's nice to have that like a, uh, familiarity with the world. Like You can do it if you have like a sequel to a campaign, for instance. So... Like in Critical Role, obviously everything comes out of Matt's head, but when you get the, like the campaign one references in campaign two, mm. and all the players are like, whoa, that's like a meta uh, moment because the actual player characters in the game don't no, know anything about that. Is, that. Yeah. But it's, it's important to the players. So you can do that on the sequel to your homebrew campaign, but you, you can't do it in first, the first time round. <laughs> that doesn't work as well, does it? Oh, man. But yeah, a um, lot of fun stuff. A lot of fun stuff. Um, there you go. Yeah, there we go. Well, look, Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons, great game. We love it a lot. We're going to do um, a, a short session of Dragon Heist tomorrow night. Um, hopefully, another session the following weekend. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about what we what we learn. Ben from the Dice Dungeon did actually ask us to go over a topic, and we've not done it this week. So maybe we'll we'll get on that for you next week, Ben. Um, but if you want to get in touch with us, you can. We speak common. dot com is our website. We speak common at hotmail. dot com is our email. Uh, at we speak common is our Twitter. And if you see us on Reddit, it's probably me. So drop us a message. Excellent. Cool. All right, Joe. Well, um, you deserve a rest now because you've just DM'd for like five and a half hours, and uh, I need to go make some dinner. So party on, and I will speak to you tomorrow night. Absolutely. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening today. If you like the podcast, do us a favor. Leave us a like or review on your platform of choice and share us with your friends. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at WeSpeakCommon or through the email WeSpeakCommon at Hotmail.com. The music in the podcast is Street Dancing by Timecrawler82 and is licensed under an attribution license CC by NC. You can find it on the Free Music Archive. Free Music Archive.